John chapter 1, we'll be covering verse 14. I'll read a few verses from the beginning of the chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for drawing us to yourself. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. And we thank you, Lord, for sending your son for the word having become flesh to be our propitiation, to be our high priest. Lord, we pray now that as we study this text, that you would cause your spirit to make your word come alive uh, in the hearts of of your people. Lord, we pray that we would receive from this what you intend. May we be built up in faith. Uh, May those who don't know you be convicted of their sin. And may you be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, uh, and we continue in the prologue. Now, if you may have noticed, we are taking our time in working through this prologue, and there are some reasons for that. Dr. James White put it very well, speaking of the prologue. He says, the prologue of John is a literary masterpiece. Its balance is almost unparalleled. It is a carefully crafted work of art, a revelation that has inspired believers for almost 2,000 years. The brightest minds have been fascinated by it and have always marveled at its beauty. It is an inexhaustible treasure. He goes on. John clearly intended this passage to function as a window of sorts through which we are to read the rest of his gospel. If we stumble here, we are in danger of missing so much of the richness that is to be found in the rest of the book. But if we work hard to grasp John's meaning here, many other passages will open up for us of their own accord yielding tremendous insights into the heart of God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, close quote. So as he mentions, and as we've covered previously, John is introducing themes in this prologue that he will return to later in his gospel. And so in that way, the prologue is kind of like a table of contents for the rest of John. Now central, of course, to the gospel is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to a tremendous statement about Christ, about who he is. And so in order to do justice to this topic, we will take this morning to dive into the the incarnation, to study the topic of Christology, the study of Christ, as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Pastor Josh just read for us, John began his gospel and introduced us to God the Son as the eternal logos, the eternal word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You may remember we covered the doctrine of the Trinity briefly, uh, the way that Christians have historically accounted for all of the biblical data. Again, the fact that there is very clearly only one God 
but that there are three distinguishable persons in Scripture who are all identified as God. And so Christians have historically confessed that God is three in one, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now we come to another complicated topic uh, in another amazing statement from John. So having introduced us to the eternal Son of God, the pre-existent Son of God, as the divine word through whom all things were made, John now says in verse 14, read with me, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word, God the Son, became flesh. That is, he became a man. I think you can see right off the bat how that raises a whole host of questions. Many of which have been the cause of tremendous debate, controversy, and even schism throughout church history. How? Did God become a man? Did he have a full human nature like ours? Or would a human nature be swallowed up and lost in the divine, like a drop of wine in the sea? Would God, becoming flesh, absorb human nature and make the human nature divine? In what sense, then, would we be able to say that he was human? Or... On the other side, was Jesus simply a man whom the divine Son united to himself? Were there then two persons in Jesus, one divine and one human? Now we'll aim to answer some of these questions this morning and then look at why they matter. Now let's begin by looking at our text. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word, the Logos, God, the Son, became flesh took on flesh. Now, the word flesh can be a little bit confusing to us since in Scripture it gets used a few different ways. Now, probably the most common way that we will use the word flesh uh, is to refer to the sinful nature. Remember in Galatians, we saw how the desires of the flesh are against the Holy Spirit. And so flesh can and often does refer to our sinful, fallen nature. But we need to note that it does not always carry that meaning. Uh, For example, in the Bible, in marriage, a husband and wife are said to become one flesh. Marriage is the one flesh union of a man and a woman. The word flesh can also simply refer to having a physical body. You may remember after his resurrection from the dead, when Jesus was trying to prove to his disciples that he was not a ghost, he said to them, after, well, first he ate some fish. I love that story. Uh, Jesus ate some fish on the beach because ghosts don't eat fish. Uh, but then Jesus said, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so this is John's meaning here in the prologue. The word became flesh, took on flesh and bone, became a human being. It is not saying that Jesus had a sinful nature. We need to get that right, and we'll we'll see why later on. So James White again, the Logos was not eternally flesh. He existed in a non-fleshly manner in eternity past. 
But at a blessed point in time, at the incarnation, the Logos became flesh. The eternal experienced time, close quote. Now, I think our familiarity as Christians with this fact can cause us to miss how truly awe-inspiring and mind-blowing this statement truly is. The Word became flesh. The eternal entered time. The infinite voluntarily took on finitude. The Creator entered into his own creation as never before. The Word became flesh. He did not simply appear to be flesh. Certain heretical groups claimed that Jesus did not have a physical body, but just had the appearance of a physical body. Um, but notice that's not what it says. The Word became flesh. His humanity was not an illusion, but it was true flesh, true humanity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, as we'll see later in John, this gospel is not a second or third-hand account. This was all written by the beloved disciple, John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. He was among the first of the disciples called to walk with Christ. He was there with Peter and James on the Mount of Transfiguration, and John was the only disciple whose presence is recorded at the crucifixion. He walked with Jesus, talked with him. In the Last Supper, he leaned on Jesus. This is a first-hand account, an eyewitness testimony. We have seen his glory. He dwelt with us. We have seen it with our own eyes. All right, next, he dwelt with us. Now, the word dwelt means literally to pitch a tent or tabernacle. D.A. Carson writes, more literally translated, the Greek verb skinu means that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. For Greek-speaking Jews and other readers of the Greek Old Testament, the term would call to mind the skinu, the tabernacle where God met with Israel before the temple was built, close quote. So the word, God the Son, became flesh and tabernacled among us. If you remember back to our Exodus series, you may remember that one of, if not the major blessings of the covenant was what we called the Emmanuel principle. God with us. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. As O. Palmer Robertson writes, the heart of the covenant is the declaration that God will be with us. That was Moses' complaint when God was going to punish Israel and was going to dwell outside of the camp. He, he complained, how will people know that we are your people? Is it not by you dwelling with us? Now, within the most holy place, the holy of holies within the tabernacle, this was the place where God dwelt. 
He was there with his people. And so this tabernacle, this presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people is what would immediately come to mind when John uses this phrase that he has tabernacled among us. He has dwelt among us. But notice how John applies it. He's not talking now about God's glory dwelling in a cloud in a physical tent, but rather we see this advancing in redemptive history. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, not a tent, but a person. God became man. What had been foreshadowed through God's presence among his people in the tabernacle and later the temple was now incarnated in the truest sense of the word, in the person of Jesus Christ. God dwelt with his people. <clears throat> and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, some translations here have glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. Now, I think we need to be careful here. I remember greatly struggling with this question when I was in Bible school. In what sense can we say that Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father? Now, our human concept of begetting always involves a beginning. So, in fact, does the idea of a father-son relationship, right? For us, every single father predates his son, right? My, my father existed before I did, and I existed before my son did. So it can be tempting for us to import these human concepts onto God. But this would be a mistake, however, since as we've already seen from John's prologue, the word is eternal. God the Son had no beginning. There was never a time when he did not exist, but as verse 3 made clear, everything that was made, everything that began to exist, was made through him. Right, this gives us a guardrail. Christ is not a created being. He did not begin to exist. So then we ask, if it's not a father-son relationship in the human sense, which it's obviously not, then what was God intending to communicate by using these terms? Right? Why say something like uh, only begotten? Well, the Greek word here is monogenes, and it would be better translated as unique or one of a kind rather than only begotten. Now, the same word is used in Hebrews eleven seventeen, where it says that Abraham was willing to offer Isaac, his monogamous son. Now, if we take that to mean only begotten in the sense we would typically think of, we see a problem, right? For Isaac was not Abraham's only son, right? At this time, Ishmael was already born. He was Isaac's older half-brother, Abraham's son, through Hagar. But Isaac was a unique son, a one-of-a-kind son, in the sense that he was set apart as the son of promise, the heir to the covenant promises. And so here, too, the term monogenes points to the uniqueness of Jesus. 
He is the unique Son of God, the firstborn in the sense that he is to be the heir of all things. But as we saw last week from verse 12, even Jesus will not be the only Son of God. For those who receive him and believe in his name, he will grant the right to become children of God, fellow heirs with him. Jesus Christ is the unique son, not adopted as we are, but the natural heir of all things. And John says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Notice we have seen the glory of the one and only unique Son, full of grace and truth. So by having this word, seen his glory, together with grace and truth, D.A. Carson again writes that John is almost certainly directing his, his readers to Exodus 33 and 34. You may remember in that section, Moses begged God to show him his glory. Now God agrees, but he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes before him, shielding him from seeing the fullness of his glory. And as God passes by, he declares, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, these words, steadfast love and faithfulness, which appear all over the Old Testament in relation to the character of God, are likely what John is referencing here when he says that Christ was full of grace and truth. Steadfast love, the hesed of God, is his covenant mercy. And this word is emphasizing the graciousness of his love or kindness. Likewise, his faithfulness is his truthfulness, his trustworthiness. So D.A. Carson argues that these two words that John uses, grace and truth, are meant to summarize the same ideas of that steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. He sees a correlation there. So to have all of this together, to see John reference seeing the glory of the one and only and finding him to be full of grace and truth or love and faithfulness, this may be an intentional reference or allusion to Exodus 34 and the glory of Yahweh passing before Moses. Only here again, we have John applying this to the Son. And this brings us to another theme we will find repeated throughout John's gospel. And that is this. Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of the Father. God the Son made his dwelling with men. He tabernacled, not in a tent, but in human form. Those who walked with him and were given the eyes to see witnessed his glory full of grace and truth, the same glory of the same God that Moses was privileged to witness. Christ is the fullest revelation of God. We see this elsewhere in scripture, Hebrews 1 verse 1, 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so this is one of those themes that is vital for us to understand as we work our way through John. John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ makes the Father known. As he says in John 14, 6-9, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that the Father is in me? And I, pardon me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. The same God who dwelt in the tabernacle and showed his glory to Moses was made flesh and dwelt among his people. His glory was revealed through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. So there we have our text. Now let's return to some of the questions that I raised in the introduction. How are we to understand the incarnation? In what way did God become man? What was the relationship between his humanity and his divinity? Well, historically, there have been positions condemned as heresies that have erred on different sides of this issue. Eutyches, for example, took the position that Christ's humanity was swallowed up by his divinity, as we referenced, like a drop of wine in the sea. In emphasizing the deity of Christ in this way, his humanity virtually disappeared. Other solutions to the problem, such as that offered by Nestorius, were to view Jesus as simply a man with whom the divine son united to himself. Nestorius declared that in Jesus there were two natures and two persons, one divine and one human. The human nature and person were born of Mary, the divine were not. Both Eutychianism and Nestorianism were eventually condemned as heresies, and the church produced the definition of Chalcedon, a creedal statement helping to clarify these complicated questions of Christology. And I think it's worth knowing about or hearing for us. So here's the Chalcedonian definition or, or creed. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same God our Lord Jesus Christ, 
at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of, the, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So to simplify, Chalcedon affirmed that Christ has two natures in one person. He is fully divine, that is fully God, and also fully man, fully human. So kids, if you want a fancy theological term uh, to impress your friends or your teachers, you can learn this one. Get ready? The hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. So this is the doctrine that says there are two natures, one divine and one human, that are united in one person. So we confess Christ to be fully God and fully man. Now this excludes both Eutyches by affirming a full and complete human nature, and it also excludes Nestorius by confessing only one person and not two. So just to bring this home, what do we, what do we take with us when we think of uh, Christ, uh, his humanity and divinity? Put this as simply as possible. Christ is both fully God and fully man, two natures, human and divine, united in one person. Now, next question. Why does this matter? <laughs> right? Why is it important for us? Is it really a big deal if Christ is not fully human? Is there a reason why the Redeemer must be fully God? Why spend all this time on what seems like very complicated theological questions? Well, the answer to these questions is yes, it does actually matter a lot, and here's why. Both the full humanity and the full deity of Christ are essential to the gospel. Now, let's begin with the humanity of Christ. So, why must the Redeemer be fully human? Or what is the significance, we could ask? Why did the Word have to become flesh. Why was this necessary? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, reading from verse 14. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, 
that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So first thing for us to notice, look that it was God's plan that it would be through experiencing death that he would destroy the the one who had the power of death, that being the devil. If it is through death that he was to bring redemption, then clearly Christ needed to have a human nature. For, of course, the eternal word, the eternal logos, God the Son, being God, cannot die. And so, if the way that God would destroy the one who had the power of death was going to be through death, then Christ needed to be capable of dying. And for this, he needed a truly human nature. Right? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And so if Christ is going to take our place, bear our punishment, and die in our place, he needed to be able to die. And so the divine needed to take on a human nature in order to function as our redeemer. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It's a great verse to demonstrate the full humanity of Christ. He was made like us in every respect. His humanity was not swallowed up by his divinity, but he was made like us in every respect. He partook of flesh and blood. The word became flesh. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So catch that statement there. In order to function as high priest, in order to make propitiation for his people, Hebrew says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that only a true human could make propitiation for human sin. Only a true human could function as high priest in this way. As it says, he had to be made like his brothers. This was in some sense a necessity. It could not be otherwise. And so I hope we're starting to see the significance of affirming the full humanity of Christ. If his humanity was necessary for him to make propitiation, that is, of course, to offer himself as the sacrifice that took away wrath, if his humanity was necessary for him to function as our high priest, then we see that without his full humanity, 
There is no gospel. There is no atonement, no propitiation. There is no intercession. And therefore, there is no salvation. And we also see from Hebrews that we are meant to be comforted by the fact that our high priest is merciful and faithful and knows what it is to face temptation. As it says here, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or as Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As the King James has it, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. As Puritan author Thomas Goodwin writes, he both can or is capable of and likewise is touched by our infirmities. Take comfort, Christian. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God wanted us to know that he knows what it is to suffer as we suffer. So to anyone who would be tempted to think of God as being so far above us, so transcendent that he could not relate to our trials, temptations, and sufferings, this stops their mouths. For the word became flesh. He became as we are. He experienced what we experience. Jesus wept. He felt sorrow. He felt hunger. He got tired. He suffered temptations. And as a result, Scripture says, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows firsthand what it is to suffer. And his heart is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He can and does truly sympathize with us. Now, this has been a great comfort for me. And I would encourage you, whatever situation you're facing, look for a parallel in the life and experience of Christ. Find something in the Gospels that Christ went through that parallels your situation. Are you hated unjustly? Christ came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Have you been betrayed by a close friend? Christ's own disciples deserted him in his darkest hour. His most zealous friend started calling down curses on himself, claiming he did not even know Christ. Jesus lost loved ones. And he let himself feel the sorrow. Jesus was mocked. He was bullied. He was spit upon. He was made a public spectacle. 
He was tortured and he was executed. Now, none of this is meant to downplay your pain by comparing it to Christ. It's not about one-upsmanship here, but rather to show that you have a merciful and faithful high priest who can and does truly relate. So find a parallel to your situation in the life of Christ and be reminded that your great high priest, God the Son, who is praying for you, interceding for you in the presence of his Father, is a high priest who knows, a high priest who feels, and a high priest filled with sympathy and compassion for his people. Take comfort in this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and may truly sympathize with our weaknesses. <clears throat> Second, why is it essential that the Redeemer also be fully God? Now, to my knowledge, there is no text that addresses this question quite as directly as we saw with the last question. But there are some things which scripture does say from which I think we can safely draw some inferences. So first, let us consider what is meant by the word propitiation. Now, to make propitiation is to provide a sacrifice that takes away wrath. Christ is said to have died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became a curse for us, taking on himself the curse of our law-breaking. What does justice require for a sin against an infinite God? Does it not require an infinite punishment? Is this not why hell is eternal? So Christ, the wrath bearer, dies in your place and takes the wrath which you would have experienced for eternity in hell. And he bears that infinite punishment in himself as he dies upon the cross. And of course, not only the infinite punishment against your sin, but the infinite punishment due to every elect person across all of time. So you take infinite punishment, eternity in hell, multiplied by the number of the elect, a multitude that no one can number, like the sand of the seashore or the stars in the sky. A man who was just a man would be crushed by this. A man who was just a man could not bear the weight of the infinite wrath of God. And so it was necessary that Christ be the God-man. As the Westminster Larger Catechism says, it was necessary that the Redeemer should be God so that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God. 
So we see the divine nature of Christ was necessary to sustain the human nature that he might be capable of bearing that awful load. As Francis Turretin put it, satisfaction could not be made to infinite justice except by some infinite ransom. Nor could that infinite ransom be found anywhere but in the Son of God. Another principle that points to the necessity of the deity of Christ, or another reason we could give for why the Redeemer needed to be truly God, is found in something that we see all over Scripture. And that is in God's commitment to his own glory. It is a refrain we find, my glory I will not give to another. We saw in Sunday school this morning, God does things in the way he does so that he will be glorified and his people will not be tempted to take credit for themselves. We are repeatedly called in scripture to glorify God as the God of our salvation, for salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm 3.8. It is God's design that we would glorify and exalt him for salvation. This, in fact, is central to our worship and will be for eternity. Revelation 5.12, the worship of the Lamb in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What mere creature would be worthy of such accolades? God will not share his glory with another. Salvation belongs to our God, and so our salvation is solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so we must affirm Christ to be fully God and fully man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, as Turton put it, man alone could die for men, and God alone could vanquish death. Christ's full humanity and full deity are both necessary to the gospel. The mediator between God and man is himself the God-man, the eternal word incarnate who took to himself a human nature and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Our adoption as sons is only possible this way. Man came to be a son of God because the son of God became a man. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And as a result of his work, we who receive and believe in him have the blessing of the Emmanuel principle carried to its next stage in redemptive history. As we mentioned, Emmanuel means God with us. And he truly was with us in the person of Jesus Christ. But what's fascinating is that Christ himself said that there was a blessing even better than having him with us in the flesh. I'll close this morning with John 16, verse 7. Jesus said to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
So as glorious as it was to have Emmanuel, God with us, the eternal word made flesh, Jesus says there is something better. He says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I leave, that I go away. It is better, more advantageous for you than for me to stay. Now why? What could possibly be better than having God dwelling with us in the person of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus says, better than this is for us to have the helper, the Holy Spirit. And here we have the Emmanuel principle taken a step further. For because the word became flesh, fully God and fully man, he was able to accomplish a redemption. He was able to bear in himself the wrath, the punishment that was due to our sin. And now he is our great sympathizing high priest. And because of what he has done, we now as the people of God have the blessing and great privilege of becoming the dwelling place of God. You may have noticed Christianity has no central temple building. There is no physical, earthly, holy of holies behind a curtain somewhere where the glory of God dwells in the midst of his people. The kingdom of God is global, and his dwelling is now within his people. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you are the dwelling place of God on earth. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. God with us, Emmanuel. We are his people and he is our God, dwelling with us in a way that scripture reveals to be better than what Israel had in the tabernacle or the temple, and even better than what the disciples experienced while walking with the word made flesh. God is with us. So I encourage you on this Lord's Day, reflect on the glories of Christ, fully God and fully man, and so able to be our redeemer, our propitiation, our mediator and high priest. Reflect on the glories of being the dwelling place of God on earth, a reality that is anticipating the final stage of redemptive history, when the Emmanuel principle will find its full consummation, when Christ returns and destroys death, and we will be with God forever. Amen.